Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Last week, myself along with a number of our staff and elders had the opportunity to go to California. We were actually at an event uh, that was called the Inerrancy Summit. Four days of messages and seminars focusing on how the Bible is the very Word of God, how we can understand God through it and it's trustworthy uh, and, and worth our attention and time. And so that's really why we are going to look at it this morning. But you know, I mentioned that we went to this conference and that this conference was in California. Now, some of you travel a lot. I don't travel as much. But when you travel a lot, you know that there's a reality that happens when you go very far to the east or to the west. You go very far to the east or to the west, you're going to change time zones. You're going to enter a new reality. Um, and, but, but, but at times when you go on these trips east or west, uh, you might forget to change your watch. Uh, that was me this last week, only I didn't forget to change it. I decided not to change it. I decided to leave my watch on Oklahoma time to remember what time it was, what I would call home that I wouldn't call too late. Uh, I certainly couldn't call too early, but so that I wouldn't call too late in the evenings. And so that was my strategy, and we arrived there on Tuesday. Now, Wednesday morning, after a night's sleep, I wake up, and somewhere between hitting the pillow on Tuesday night and waking up on Wednesday morning, I forgot that my watch was still on Oklahoma time. And so I look down, and it says 7, and I wake up in a panic because I wanted to get up much earlier than that. I begin running around the, the hotel room, kind of throwing things aside. And, and really, I've never been in a hurry at, at this time of day before. It's 5 a.m., but, but you know, I thought it was 7, and so I'm hurrying, I'm running around. Then, I, then it hits me that I am looking at a different reality. I'm living in the West Coast at that point, but I'm looking at Oklahoma time. And that creates some confusion, doesn't it? You know, I was thinking about that because uh, as we live out our lives connected to Jesus Christ, following him, trusting in him for the forgiveness of our sins, the Bible tells us that God has placed us in a new reality. Our hearts have been cleansed. Our identity has been changed. We live with a new Lord, a new master, a new agenda. We live in a new reality if we know Christ. But the problem is, as we live out our lives in this new reality, we still wear the old watch of our flesh. And there's times when living in this new reality, we look down at our watch, and it's at odds with what God says is real, with what God says is true. And when we find ourselves in that situation, it's important for us to take the time to recalibrate. It's funny, on that morning, I decided that my plan was a bad one and I changed my watch to, to West Coast time. Um, and, and you know what? As we gather here today, we're going to gather around God's Word, and my hope is as we, we look at it that we begin to recalibrate our minds. We recalibrate our hearts into the new reality of what God has offered to us in Christ um, because He is, has given us a new way, a new era in which to live. Now, we're going to do this today by looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. These verses tell us something about the purpose of Christ, specifically at the end of this section. But it's important for us to read all of this section to understand what God is, is getting at, the point that he wants us to grasp, 
the calibration he wants to take place in our hearts and in our minds about what it looks like for us to follow him. We're going to look at it today from Mark 10, verses 35 to 45. If you've got a Bible, take it out and open there. We're going to spend our time there today. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me. God's word to us today says this. It says, now, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and they said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant to us that we would sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." Now, in these words today, we're going to see three things. We're going to end with a purpose statement that Jesus gives, but we're going to see three things in, in the path to that that help us know a little bit about us and our lives and the calibration that needs to take place as we follow him. Now, the first thing we're going to see is this. We're going to see our expectations revealed. Our expectations revealed. Now, we see this through James and John. There are surrogates in this story. James and John, two of Jesus' initial followers, they come to him to ask him a question. Now, in a parallel passage in, in Matthew chapter 20, as Matthew describes it, as these two men come, they come with a very important guest, their mom. Uh, their mom, Salome, walks up with them their mom, who was Jesus' aunt, walks up with them, and the three of them ask Jesus a question. In the different accounts, we find the mom asked the question in Matthew. We find James and John asked the question in Mark. I think they all three asked it, either out loud or in their hearts. They come to Jesus, and, and this is what they say. They said, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, that's a pretty big ask, isn't it? I mean, that's like if you were 16 going up to your parents and saying, Mom, Dad, can I have a check, a blank check? No, nothing in the to field, nothing in the amount field. I just want your signature on it. In other words, I want to be able to write that check for as much as I want, when I want, to who I want. Jesus Will you do for us whatever we want? They were, in fact, asking for a blank check. 
Jesus amazingly responds to them and says, what do you want me to do for you? And they say back to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Now, that's a pretty big thing to ask. I mean, I would want my mom to ask that for me too. Um, That's a big thing to ask for yourself, isn't it? They walk up and they said, we want to sit at your right and at your left. Now, what's that all about? Why would, they, why would they ask such a thing at his right or at his left when he, when he comes in glory? I mean, this is kingdom language. This is throne language. Why would they ask such a thing at, in, in that setting? I mean, Jesus had not sat on a throne at any point in his life. They'd been following him for a while. They, they had never seen him ascend a throne. They had never seen him issue you know, some kind of, uh, of edict like a ruler would in, in the context of uh, Herod's palace or something like that. That, That's not the world that Jesus had lived. Why are they talking about glory? Why are they talking about thrones? Well, I think there's a a few reasons why they're they're asking this. I think they're asking about thrones and right and left hand because, first of all, they had an expectation that Jesus was probably the Messiah. They'd begun to, to become convinced of that. The Messiah would come, and they understood from the Old Testament there would be a kingdom that would follow. Uh, the Romans would be kicked out according to their expectation, and, and the, the Jews would, would have a, a kingdom that would begin to spread and its influence and its impact, and they become familiar with that concept. They had begun to attribute Jesus as that person, that ruler who would come, and so that was part of their expectation. That's one reason. But I think a second reason why they thought that, that maybe this is what was going to happen was because Jesus had just said something very similar to that. Now, I mentioned that this is a parallel account is found in, in the book of Matthew in chapter 20. But in Matthew chapter 19, we see a very interesting thing that Jesus says. Right before this event, Jesus says this to his disciples. He said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man comes, he will sit on his glorious throne, and you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Why are they talking about thrones? Why are they talking about glory? Well, because Jesus had just said something very similar to that. Now, Jesus had said in between there, he had talked about coming and and dying and raising from the dead. I mean, he had talked about a lot of things, but they had put all that into the package of, okay, the kingdom is getting ready to happen. It's getting ready to come. And and Jesus had certainly promised that they would share responsibility in that kingdom, that they would be able to sit on thrones and that they would have responsibility in, in, in some kind of position when Jesus' kingdom was established. But you know what? The, the disciples, James and John, they wanted not just what Jesus had promised, but they wanted something more. They wanted something just a little bit more. They wanted to sit at the right and at the left. It wasn't enough for them to sit in one of the 12 thrones. They wanted to sit in the right 12 throne or in the left 12 throne. Now, what's the significance of that? In the, the first century, this language would have been akin of saying, I want to be your right-hand man, your, your number one sitting at your right hand. And if I can't be in that chair, I want to be your number two in the left hand, the left chair. I think that though the passage doesn't tell us, I think that James and John probably both thought they should be in the right chair, but they knew that two bodies wouldn't fit there. And so mom's compromise is we'll just go right and left, one and two. This is where they they thought they wanted to be. You see, Jesus had promised to bless them, 
He had promised them position. He had promised them authority, but it wasn't enough. They wanted something more. Now, it's easy for us to lampoon James and John. It's very easy for us to do that, isn't it? We look at this and we go, really? Really? This is what you're going to ask. Jesus says, I'm going to go to the cross, and the verses immediately preceding this in Mark chapter 10, he talks about the things that lie ahead of him, and their response is, can I sit at your right or at your left? Jesus says, you're going to sit on 12 thrones, you're going to rule with me, but they, that's not good enough for them. They want to sit at the right or at the left. They wanted something more. It's easy for us to lampoon them for that statement. But you know what? Here's the reality. It, I, I see a lot of me in that statement. You see any of you in that statement? See, our expectations are revealed over time. We have expectations that Jesus would do for us something more than what he has already promised to bless us with. Jesus has promised to bless us with forgiveness of sins if we trust in him. He's promised to bless us with eternity in his presence. He's promised that when he comes again and establishes his kingdom, not only will the 12 disciples be there present with him, those, but any who have followed him will have the opportunity to reign with him. And if you've trusted in Christ, you have all of those blessings coming to you. There are promises from God to, to reign with him, to be forgiven, and to be with him in eternity. Those are just a few of the many promises that Jesus has given to us. But you know what? At, at, at some level, that's not enough for us, is it? We want that plus something more. James and John wanted the right and the left, but what do you want? If you were to be able to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want you to give me whatever I want, how would you then ask for something next? If you came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I want you to give me whatever I want, and Jesus says, okay, what do you want? Now it's your turn, go. What, what would you say? For some, you might respond with, I want you to give me this job. There's a vocational hope or desire. If you could give me anything, Jesus, I want you to give me this job, or I want you to give me this salary. I want you to give me this, this privilege. For others of you, that wouldn't be what you would ask. You, you might ask, Lord, I, what I want you to give me is this spouse. You might be single, and you're like, Lord, if you could give me anything, I want you to give me the spouse of my dreams. If, if you're married, you might, Lord, what I want you to give me is the spouse that I, that I hope for. Um, that you would improve our relationship in some way. I want what you've blessed me with, but I want something more. I want that next phase, that next step. For others, it might be something related to your family. I want this number of children. That's what I want. I, Lord, if you could do anything for me, I want you to do this. For others, it might be health-related. Lord, if you could do anything for me, what I would want you to do is to take this illness, this cancer, this disease away from me or I want you to keep it from ever coming near me. And I don't know what it is that you would say, but all of us could fill in the gap after that. What's your something more that you want God to do for you? All of us have something. We just don't have the theater recorded in Scripture at times to show it, what, us what it looks like when it plays out. James and John lived their lives with the Word of God chronicling what they did. They come to Jesus and they said, I know that you've promised to bless us, but we want your blessing plus something more. How would you answer that today? Now, here's an important thing that I think for us to see. It's not wrong for us to go to Jesus and to ask him for something more. 
It is not wrong for us to do that. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't reject them. He doesn't say, get out of my face, you people. Is it not enough that I gave you thrones? Now you want that throne? Get, go away. Jesus never says that. That's, that's not what he says in response to this. And when we come before God with our expectations, when they become revealed in time, and we come and we present them, we can come and we can present them to Jesus. The only problem is sometimes when we come and we present our expectations to Jesus, at times they're living on a central time zone and we're on the West Coast. There's times with the things that we ask, the things that we desire, our plus ones to God are simply outside the bounds of what he has for us and our expectations need to be recalibrated. Jesus does that for James and John. He takes the time to recalibrate their watch. And you know what? There's times that, that you and I in life as we come and we, we make our requests known to God and, and the answer doesn't come back in the way that we want that we need to have our expectations recalibrated as well. We need to have our watches rewound set to a new time, a new era. Jesus responds to them in verse 38, and he says to them simply, you do not know what you're asking. Now, how did he respond? What was, what was his countenance like? Did he respond with a, with a wagging finger? Did he respond with a furrowed brow? We, we really don't know. We, we don't know uh, exactly how Jesus said these words. For most of my life, I've read these things, and I read them as a, a firm or an angry rebuke. But you know, as I've been kind of living in this passage for a while, I, I, I really don't think it was an angry rebuke at all. I think that, that Jesus is just telling them, you know what, you're, you're asking for something, and I know that you think that that's what's best, but you know what, there's just some things you don't understand. There's just some things you don't know. I know you can make an argument for why the thing that you're asking for would make the world a better place. I know you can make an argument why the thing that you're asking for could give the most glory to God, but you gotta know this, there's things that you don't know. There's just things that you don't understand. You can't put all of the pieces together yourself with your health, with your family, with your vocation, with the big things of your life. There are some things that you just don't have all of the information on. Jesus says that to James and John. He's beginning to recalibrate their watch. And you know what, if, if you're here today and you're, you're angry with God, you're frustrated, you're sad, you're disappointed because you have brought your expectation to him and the answer has come back no or no answer at all at this point, hear the voice of Christ saying not to rebuke you, but just to say, you know what, we need to get on the same page. We need to get in the same time zone. He recalibrates their watch. He, he goes on, he recalibrates it in a couple of ways. His first way he does so is he lets them know that their lives, though he's going to bless them immensely in eternity, and though they have experienced some of that blessing now, they're also going to experience difficulty in this life. It's one of the ways he recalibrates it. Look at what he says. He says to them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right or my left is not mine to grant, but is for those who have been prepared. What is Jesus saying when he says that? When Jesus talks about the cup, can you think of another time that Jesus mentioned the cup? He mentioned the cup over in Mark chapter 14. 
he's thinking about the cross that lies in front of him. He says, let this cup pass from me. The cup is a symbol of judgment. It's a, he's looking forward to the suffering that was going to come about in his life. And, and he, he references that as a cup. The baptism that he might be referring to over in Luke chapter 12, baptism associated with the suffering that Jesus would go through as well. I think that he's talking about difficulty, strife, and persecution. See, the disciples needed to be recalibrated around this notion that their life would not just experience every blessing now. They wouldn't get all their plus ones today, but there would be difficulty that would be associated with this life. And you know what? If you've lived five minutes, you could say amen to that. You know that that's true. You've experienced hardship. You've experienced difficulty. You've experienced disappointment. You've experienced the cup. You've experienced the baptism. And, and Jesus specifically with James and John is, is talking about the suffering that they would go through uh, because of their connection to him. Just as Jesus would be crucified by the, the Roman authority and the Jewish leaders, just as Jesus would be crucified, so James and John would experience suffering and persecution for their faith. It's interesting that these two brothers, James and John, are somewhat of a bookend of the disciples' suffering for Jesus. The very first disciple to be uh, martyred for his faith was James. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 talks about James, the brother of John's death, the first of the martyrs of the disciples. John lived much longer. We know John is the one that, that would go all the way to prison at the end of his life, but he was imprisoned for his faith at the end, and, and he, would, he would die there. They become somewhat of a bookends of the apostles for us who would suffer for the name of Christ. Jesus was, was issuing really a prophecy to them here. He was saying, you know, your lives are going to be marked with difficulty because you're following me. Certainly there will be blessings, certainly there will be redemption, certainly there will be future reign with me, but in the meantime, you're going to experience some suffering, you're going to experience some difficulty because of your connection to me. Jesus reminds them of that. He recalibrates their life around that. And you know what? As, as you and I live out our lives today, we need to be reminded of that truth as well. The Apostle Paul would later say that all who desire to live a godly life will will be persecuted, will suffer. And you know what? For a long time, it's been easy for us to file persecution in the overseas file of our lives. It's something that happens over there with other people. And we, we see on TV the Egyptian Christians marched along the beach and, and, and killed for their faith, and we think of that as persecution. Certainly, that's a dramatic expression of that. We, we see that, we understand that, we know that. But you know what, there, there's other expressions of persecution that are ongoing today. And as believers in Christ, we need to be prepared, even in America, even in Norman, to be ready to be persecuted for our faith. I mentioned earlier this last week, I was in uh, California at this inerrancy summit, and one of the speakers was Al Mohler, who is the president of Southern Seminary. And, and uh, Dr. Moeller was talking about the difficulty of living uh, in, this, in this reality, this world in which we live as it relates to, to persecution. And, and this is what uh, Dr. Moeller said. He said, to be a defender of the inerrancy of the Bible, and let me just caveat that for a second. When he talks about the inerrancy of the Bible, I, I would say to be a defender of Christ, to stand with him, to say that what Jesus says is true, and, and that goes, that's what we're talking about. Just to be a defender of the inerrancy of the Bible, to be a follower of Christ, you must be prepared for what they will call you. 
they used to call you anti-intellectual. We've gotten used to that as a church, right? Anti-intellectual. You don't believe that nonsense. You know, Dr. Moeller shared this as somebody who was called anti-intellectual in Forbes magazine just a couple of weeks ago because of his beliefs about um, different things that the Bible speaks on. You might have been called that as well. You might have been called anti-intellectual in the university, in the classroom, among your colleagues, among your friends, among your family. You don't really believe that there was a creator God. You don't really believe that these things in the Old Testament happened. You're anti-intellectual if you believe that. You've, you've checked your mind at the door. It's a f- subtle form of persecution, but we, we've, we've experienced it, right? Doug Galbraith was, was sharing with me earlier that, that the, uh, an issue of Natural Ge- National Geographic magazine cover article recently about this very thing and about how Christians are just a bunch of flat earthers. We've checked our minds at the door. We've we've been anti-intellectual. Moeller mentions that. But you know what? Moeller goes on and says that now in this day and age, we're not just called anti-intellectual. He says, now they will call you immoral. If you're not prepared to be called that, you are not prepared to take a stand for the sufficiency of Scripture in today's world. Now, what's he talking about there? What does he mean that today we might be called not just anti-intellectual, but we'd be called immoral? I think what he's talking about is is the the, the current of our culture that wants to say that every behavior is okay. And if a Christian were to stand with the Word of God and call any behavior that the Bible calls sin, sin, that we would be judgmental or immoral. Great example of that is the issue of homosexuality. I believe that, that God can work and forgive any sin. I'm, I'm a person who has committed lots of sins in my life, more than I can count. And God has shown mercy and grace to me. And if you're a believer in Christ, you know that's true for you as well. But we live in a culture that has taken one particular sin, one particular thing that the Bible says is wrong, and, and, and it said, you know what? If you stand with the Bible and say that that behavior is sinful, then you're immoral, you're judgmental. And you know what? We've gotten used to being called anti-intellectual, but you know, we get called immoral and we start to get uncomfortable in our seat, don't we? You know what's happening in those moments? What's happening in those moments is we need to go back to passages like Mark 10 and realize that Jesus wants to recalibrate our watch. He says, you know what, you're living in a different era, you're living in a different reality, you're living in a different zone. And if you think that you'll not experience any opposition as you live in that zone, you need to have your watch recalibrated. Because in fact, we will experience some persecution. James and John would experience it in one way, we might experience it in another, but there will be opposition in this life. There's gonna be difficulty, there's gonna be struggle. One of the ways in which our, our lives need to be recalibrated is to be recalibrated around this issue of, of struggle or, or suffering. But there's a second way that our, our watches need to be recalibrated. And we see that in 41 and following. It says, when, the, when the, the 10 heard this, they began to be indignant at James and John. When, when the, 10, the, other, the other 10 disciples heard this request to sit at the right and the left, they get upset. Now, why do they get upset? Because they wanted to be at the right and the left hand. Who who are they to say that they're better? I mean, this reveals what's going on in their hearts as well. They had an expectation. They didn't have the courage to ask. 
they begin to get upset. They were thinking that their connection to, to Jesus was about them just getting a bunch of stuff. But Jesus recalibrates their lives and, and lets them know that their following him will lead to a change in the way that they relate to others, that they don't exist so that others would serve them, but that they exist so that they would serve others. This is what he says. Jesus called them to him and he said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. You see, we begin to think that life is about our comfort. We begin to think that life is about our privilege. This is our temptation, but we need to be recalibrated that our life is about God's glory. Whatever he's got for us, we should receive as a, as a gift from him, even if it's hard. But also, we should see our lives as an opportunity to serve and pour out into others and not just have them pour out into us. See, the Gentiles' understanding of leadership, the Roman way, was that the people of Rome existed to serve Caesar. But that's not the Christian way. The Christian way is not we become believers so that the world serves us. The way is that we know Christ so that we have the opportunity to serve others. We need to have our watches, our lives recalibrated around God's truth. We have an expectation that's revealed in time but our expectations are recalibrated in Christ. But a third thing we need to see, and now we're going to get to this great purpose statement of Jesus in Mark 10, 45, is this. We have an example, and that's our Redeemer. Our example is our Redeemer. Jesus says, the last part of verse 43 says, but, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. That would fit wonderfully on a t-shirt or a flip-over book. It's a great thing to say at the business seminar. Uh, it's, it's a kind of catchy, one-liner statement. But what gives that statement its power is, is not just that it was said, but that it was lived. Who is the greatest who's ever lived, contrary to popular belief, not Muhammad Ali? The greatest is Jesus Christ. And as Jesus Christ is coming to the earth, he came and he served others. It wasn't just a statement for him, but it was a way of life. It was the example that he set. He did not consider equality with God, Philippians 2 says, as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, becoming obedient even to death on the cross. Jesus came to serve. Verse 45 is this, this beautiful statement. He says, for even the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So much of what we know about Jesus, we could attribute in that statement. If you ask anybody in this room, what do you know about Jesus? What do you know about his life? People would tell you things like, he, he, he taught those who lacked wisdom. He healed those who were sick. He fed those who were hungry. He washed the feet of those whose feet were dirty, who were his friends. 
He was one who was a servant to those around him. He was a good man who emptied himself and served others. We, we recognize that. We know that. Those are the things that we understand about the person of Jesus. In the 33 years of his life on the earth, he lived it as a servant. But it goes further. He, he didn't just come to be a good guy. And he didn't just come in order to take care of some temporal needs. He came to, to, to go one further. He came to offer his life, it says, as a ransom for many. He came to give his life as a payment so that we might be released. The picture in the Bible is that humanity is enslaved because of sin. That because of our sin, we have been locked in a dungeon and held captive that our lives, because of their sin, will experience judgment and, and, and harshness for all eternity unless someone could pay a ransom of righteousness to get us out. If somebody could pay a ransom of dying in our place so that we might be freed. Jesus came not just to serve in an abstract way or in a temporal way. Jesus came to serve by giving his life to pay a payment to God so that we might be forgiven. Jesus loves us. He cares for us. He was righteous enough to offer his death on the cross so that you and I might see our sins forgiven, so that you and I might be connected to God again. What an amazing example that we have in our Savior. Someone who gave us the model of what it looks like to have expectations calibrated rightly to follow him, to see life as an act of service to others, not privilege for himself, and to offer sacrifice so that we might be free. Now, I don't know where you're at, but I, I mentioned earlier, I believe firmly that everybody in this room could affirm that Jesus came to serve. You could affirm that. No matter where you are, you came in here, there, there's some, you came to a church on a Sunday morning at 1050. At some level, you're attracted to the person of Jesus. No doubt you would say that he is someone who would serve, but here's the question. Have you ever gotten to a spot in your life where you've trusted in him to be the ransom for your sin? you ever gotten to a spot in your life where you realize that your only hope of being let out of the dungeon of your sin is for the death of Christ to purchase your freedom? If you have never gotten to that spot, it's my hope, it's my prayer that this morning, right now as I close in prayer, that you might trust in Christ and receive his payment that can set you free. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love towards us. Thank you for uh, the gift that you've given us in Christ. Father, I, I pray for those among us who maybe for the first time you're working in their, their, their hearts and their lives to, to bring them right to the foot of the cross. Their sin, they feel it, has locked them up, but your Son's death on the cross is the key that is designed to set them free. And I pray right now for any who your spirit is moving within that they would 
just trust in you at this moment. They would receive the forgiveness that you offer because Jesus paid the ransom for their sins. Father, we pray that you would be honored, that you would be glorified in our response of faith to you from those that would be entering the family of God today through trusting in Christ, but also for those of us who have been a part of your family for a long time. Father, we, we have expectations of how we want you to act. But Father, I pray that you would help us to realize that you have a plan for us. There are things we just don't know. And that, Father, we would rest in your answers, even if they are no or not yet. Father, that you would recalibrate our, our watches, that we would seek your glory and service to others as we await the day when all of the blessing you have promised us will be realized. We thank you. 